Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, August 12th, 2018. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. O oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, it is called the happiest place on earth for a reason. Disneyland has close to 18 million visitors come through its gates every single year. And one of the places in the park that I think is vastly underrated is Tom Sawyer's Island, nestled close to New Orleans Square and Frontierland. Just hop on one of the motorized rafts and you'll be shuttled over the island where there are tons of things to see and places to explore, including a rickety old pontoon bridge, a pirate skeleton submerged in the water, a treasure trove of treasure chests, and of course, Tom Sawyer's treehouse. Now, of course, the reason why I like Tom Sawyer's Island so much is I'm a big fan of the author, Samuel Clemens, uh, otherwise known as Mark Twain. Why am I such a big fan? Because when I was growing up, my father used to sit by my bedside, mine and my younger brother, Ed, and would read the stories of Mark Twain to the two of us. I love those stories. Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn, Becky Thatcher, Aunt Polly, Big Jim. And these are the days before Blu-ray and DVD, before Laserdix, even before VHS tapes. Can you believe it? And those characters just jumped off of the pages and into my imagination because there is power in good stories. Welcome to the second week in our sermon series entitled Rediscovering Scripture, How the Bible Came to Be. And this is a series for people, well, let's say if you like history or for those who are intrigued by those behind-the-scenes segments that you can find on DVD extras or if you like to know the stories behind the stories or if you just want to know more about the Bible, then this series is for you. We're looking at how the Bible came to be, who wrote which books and when, and how they came to have the books that we have in our Bibles today. Last week, we kicked things off with the Hebrew Scriptures, otherwise uh, known by us Christians as the Old Testament, and today we're going to spend some time in the Gospels. There's power in good stories. And for decades, the stories of Jesus' life Teaching, miracles, and resurrection were passed on by word of mouth among the early Christians. In fact, they didn't actually get written down until 40 to 60 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. 40 to 60 years after Jesus walked the earth. And even once they were written down, they were meant to be read aloud in a community gathering by the early church. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. What is... A gospel. Well, the English word gospel originally meant good news, and it's an exact translation from the Greek word evangelion, which is where we get the word evangelist. In the New Testament, gospel refers either to an act of preaching or to its content. And the book of Mark begins with these words In the beginning of the good news, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So why were the stories of Jesus, which were originally passed down by word of mouth, why were they eventually written down? Well, we can start at our Bible reading for today from the Gospel of Luke that we just heard read for us. 
since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the very beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. So according to the author of Luke, in the decades following Jesus' resurrection, there were a number of orderly accounts of the events of Jesus' life that circulated. As Adam Hamilton writes in his book, Making Sense of the Bible, as long as the disciples were still alive, there was no urgency in writing down the story. The disciples shared it with others who then shared it with other others. But now, many of these eyewitnesses those that were there either walking with Jesus or had heard directly from those who had, were this first generation of Christians, they were dying. And some understood the importance of then capturing Jesus' story in writing. His life, his ministry, his teaching, his death and his resurrection. Now, what's important to understand is that the Gospels, and and just about every book in the New Testament for that matter, is uh, no author wrote it only to report history or to compose interesting literature. In fact, all four of the Gospel writers had a specific community that they were writing to and sharing these stories. They had their own theological purpose for writing, meaning that they wanted to convey a a specific message about God uh, and Jesus Christ. Scholars will call this Christology. Christology is how an individual understands the person and work of Christ Jesus. So the gospel writers made intentional choices about which stories, which miracle events, which teachings uh, that they would put in their gospel and which ones they would not put in based on what it is they thought their community most needed to hear. Now, despite being the first four books in the New Testament, the Gospels were not the first written, at least not chronologically. The designation of that goes to some of Paul's letters, known as the epistles. Scholars tell us that Paul started writing his letters mm, 16 or 17 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, around 49 or 50 A.D. And as we said earlier, the Gospels weren't written down until 40 to 60 years, the first ones after Jesus' death. So it's important to remember this long gap of time as we move through this talk today. Now, another interesting tidbit that you may be surprised to hear is that despite the names, all four Gospels are actually anonymous. We don't know who wrote them. Over the years, the early church has designated names to each one, but due to that long time frame from when Jesus lived and moved among us and when they were actually written down, it's likely that none of the authors were actually disciples, first-generation disciples with Jesus. Now, there's one big difference we have to lift up at the very start of this when it comes to the gospel. So three of the books, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are very similar in the way they present Jesus. There, there are some key differences between them, and we'll talk about that in a moment, of course, but they contain many of the same stories and teachings, and they paint fairly, a fairly similar picture of Jesus. John, on the other hand, is way, way different. And we'll talk about those differences shortly. 
So the word that the scholars use for Matthew, Mark, and Luke is they are the synoptics. Synoptic. Synoptic is a compound word from the Greek, which means to see with one another. And at times, these Gospels are almost word-for-word similar. If one, as if one copied the verses from one or at least shared a common source. For example, 95% of the material in Mark's Gospel also appears in Matthew. 95%. But before you start labeling Matthew a plagiarist, you should know that 80% of Mark's Gospel also appears in Luke's Gospel. Scholars believe that Mark was the first written, and so when Matthew and Luke were writing their Gospels, they had Mark's to draw upon and used much of what Mark had already included. But there's also a significant amount of material that appears in Matthew and Luke that doesn't appear in Mark. Adam Hamilton notes that much of this material is the sayings of Jesus. And so it would seem that Mark evidently didn't have this source of material, So Matthew and Luke were drawing upon another common source that Mark uh, either didn't know or didn't use. Now, the vast majority of the Hebrew citations in the New Testament were taken from the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Scholars have speculated that there's this collection of, of material, not just the sayings of Jesus, but also some controversy stories and some parables that must have been circling around the early church. So they've labeled this, uh, this with the symbol Q uh, from the German word for source, which is Kel. And, and they've never actually found this Q document, but scholars believe that it had to have existed and that Mark, that Matthew and Luke would have drawn upon it. So a simple way of looking at it is this. Mark seemed to have written his gospel on his own, but Matthew and, and Luke used Mark and this Q source as well. Now, scholars think there were some other sources that would have influenced uh, their writings, but for the sake of our discussion today, I'm just going to leave it at this. Though next week, we're going to talk about some of the other gospels that didn't make it into the New Testament. And let me tell you, some of them are a doozy. I love how Adam Hamilton uh, addresses the reaction that some have when they, when they hear this, that there are these sources that went into the Gospels. He writes this. Some Christians find it disconcerting that there were sources behind the Gospels. They prefer to believe that each uh, other simply wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I find that the idea of written sources builds my confidence in the Gospels. The writers were serious about doing their research. They wanted to get the story right. That makes sense to me. As I mentioned earlier uh, last week, I loved learning about the story behind the story of each of the books of the Bible when I studied them in seminary. This has deepened my faith and my understanding of Scripture. Okay, so we're going to look at each of the four Gospels and see what's uh, unique and significant about each of them. We'll start with the Gospel of Mark, the first Gospel written. Scholars are divided on exactly when Mark would have penned his book. Some said it in the early 60s, others shortly after Peter's death, which would have been at 65 AD. But most mainline scholars think that it was written around 70 AD. Now, why do they come up with that date, 70 AD? Well, there was a significant event which occurred at 70 AD, and that was the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem by the Roman army. Back in Jesus' day, the presence of Rome was significant. 
Their job was to keep the peace in the Holy Roman Empire that stretched all across the Mediterranean region and beyond. You may understand that being occupied by a foreign army doesn't sit well with some people. And there was a group within Judaism, a a radical group known as the Zealots, who intentionally acted violently towards the Romans. Murder, assassination was not a problem. So in 70 AD, the Romans got fed up with this insurrection and destroyed the temple because the temple was uh, the, the life, the center, the lifeblood of the Jewish community. Now, this was the second time that the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed. The first occurred in 587 BC when the Babylonians had come in and attacked and then led the people off into the exile. We talked briefly about that last week. Well, in addition to destroying the temple, the Romans also persecuted the Jewish religious leaders. But they didn't really differentiate between the traditional Jews and those Jewish Christians who were following Jesus. To them, they were all religious fanatics. So one theory on why Mark wrote his gospel is that Mark's community was suddenly forced to flee Jerusalem to escape persecution. And until that point, they had simply retold the stories orally as they had met. When they worshipped as a community, they would remember and recall those stories, passing it on verbally. But now, facing separation and disbursement, Mark realized we've got to write this down so that our people can take it wherever it is that they're scattered and spread to across the Mediterranean. That's why it's a very short gospel. It's very to the point. In fact, it's almost just half of the verses that are in either Matthew or Luke. It's really just the essentials. Mark's theological focus is on the end times, the apocalypse. And and you can imagine that living through the destruction of the temple and then the violence that came with it uh, had to have deeply affected this faith community. And Mark wants his people to understand who Jesus truly is and what it means to be his disciple, especially in the midst of persecution and suffering. And so to understand that discipleship involves suffering in the face of persecution, to beware of false teachings and prophecy, but in the end, Jesus wins. One phrase you might hear when you're reading or uh, reading through or, 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 or studying on the Gospel of Mark is the messianic secret. It's a big word to describe the, the phenomenon that when Jesus heals someone, Often he will say, don't tell anyone about me. Which seems kind of strange. Why wouldn't Jesus want people to know about him so that others may come to believe and follow him as well? But he often says uh, they were not to know until Jesus rose from the dead. Because Jesus was both fully human and fully divine. And we get so caught up in the things that Jesus can do for us with the miracles and all of that we forget that it all has to be seen in the light of the cross, that Jesus willingly gave himself up as a sacrifice out of love. So the messianic secret is we don't know the true story of Christ until we read the whole story and come through to the resurrection. Scholars believe Matthew is probably the second gospel that was written. Perrin and Dooling in their introduction to the New Testament speak about Matthew as being very much a church book meaning that it was written specifically to meet the needs of the early church as they were developing into an organization. It provided the basis on which the church could build their life, a clear set of instructions and procedures 
for their affairs, uh, an understanding of their past, present, and future, how to make sense of the ongoing life of this early church as it's being established in the ancient Near East world. In Matthew 10, 5 and 6, we hear Jesus saying this. These 12, Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, when you read this, you may wonder, hey, why is Jesus being so exclusivist, right? Shouldn't, shouldn't he expand his ministry to Gentiles and Samaritans? But then if you understand the context in which Matthew was written, you understand that the focus of this community really was the Jewish believers of Jesus that had become that early church, it become the foundation of the church. And so as you read through the Gospel of Matthew, you see it's very clear that Matthew is writing from a Jewish perspective. There are so many passages of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, that Matthew puts all throughout his Gospel, more than any other Gospel. He's clear to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of what all of the prophets and our ancestors were looking for in the Old Testament. Perrin and Dooling say that Matthew is in constant dialogue with what is going on in Judaism at that same time. Matthew even emphasizes, uh, organizes his teachings of Jesus into five sort of sections. You might say five discourses. Why five? Well, there are five books in the Torah. Right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It could be that Matthew is giving the Jewish Christian community a new Torah and seeing Jesus as the new Moses who came not to destroy the law but to fulfill it. You can tell how that would be a message that people that had grown up in the Jewish faith and now come to see Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, they could connect and make sense to them. The third gospel according to most scholars, that was written was Luke. Luke seems to be concerned particularly with the relationship between the early church and the Roman Empire. Luke writes significantly about the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the delay in Jesus' second coming. Many thought that he was going to return in their lifetime, but suddenly it seems like he's a little busy. And the need to help the church normalize their relationships now with the Roman Empire. They're not going to get uh, taken up into heaven right away, so they've got to figure out what it means to live among this world in which they find themselves. I mean, can't we all just get along is what Luke was trying to write about. He sees the church as being good citizens in the world around them, that the Holy Spirit is God's work in all of creation and testifying that God has been working throughout all of human history. When it comes to Luke's understanding of Christ or his Christology, Perrin and Dooling write this. The Luke in Jesus is certainly portrayed as a figure of supernatural birth who is especially endowed with extraordinary powers and as a wandering teacher whose way of life was exemplary to his followers. He's a great benefactor who offers salvation and peace to the whole world. He ascends to heaven from where he pours out his spirit to the church. By the way, Luke is one of only two Gospels that actually mentions Jesus' birth. Scholars think that the author of Luke is probably a second or maybe third generation Christian. And Luke stresses the resurrection of Jesus even more than Mark or Matthew do. But perhaps the, one of the most distinguishing characteristics of Luke's Gospel is his genuine concern for the poor and the outcast. 
as seen by the way Jesus interacts with and teaches about those who live on the margins of society. For example, when Matthew writes about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But when Luke talks about it, he simply says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. All throughout Luke's gospel, the poor, the outcast, the marginalized are lifted up as being recipients of Jesus' attention, compassion, and divine blessing. And then, last but certainly not least, we come to John's gospel, the non-synoptic gospel. It was probably written around 90 or 100 AD, maybe even into the second century. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, writing in the third century, says this about the Gospel of John. John, perceiving that the external facts had been made plain in the Gospel, being urged by his friends and inspired by the Spirit, composed a spiritual Gospel. That means instead of trying to write down a a biography of Jesus' life, John seems to be focusing on conveying the spiritual significance of who Jesus was. 92% of John's gospel is not found in any of the synoptics. 92%. It is that different from the others. Adam Hamilton comments that John is less focused on telling readers what Jesus said and did and and more focused on making plain who Jesus is and what his life means for us as the church. You'll notice that when you read through John, Jesus has this series of interactions with people or with events, like Nicodemus, uh, the woman at the well, the healing of the lame man. And then John inserts this long discussion. Sometimes it's a dialogue, sometimes it's a monologue, on just what that encounter means about Jesus and who he is. In the synoptics, Jesus often speaks in parables, but he seldom uses parables in John. Instead, Jesus uses metaphors in John's gospel. See, John is less a biography and more a statement about the spiritual significance that Jesus has for our lives. So John writes more figuratively and less literally. Jesus says, I am the living water. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the living water. I am the good shepherd, I am the vine. John's community had apparently been members of the Jewish synagogue, but then were uh, excluded after they became Christian believers. And so it seems this community developed in somewhat isolation from the rest of the Christian church during that day. It's almost as if John's gospel is an extended sermon on what it means for a community of faith to live outside the life of the synagogue. The miracles of Jesus are called signs in John. In fact, all of Jesus' words and deeds can be put under that banner of signs. And for John, it means what you see is more than what you see. You have to look beneath the surface to see what the deeper meaning is and what's happening. The feeding of the 5,000 is more than just providing food for hungry people. It's indicating that Jesus is the bread of life that gives all of us what it is we ultimately need to survive. So, there you have it. A brief seminary-level introduction to the four books that have come to mean so much to so many Christians over the centuries. Next week, we'll look at the rest 
of the books of the New Testament, when they were written, and how the early church kind of figured out which are the ones that they're going to hold as most significant, as well as some of the other books that didn't make it into the Bible. But until then, may you rediscover the passion for the Gospels, for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each author, whoever they were, had a distinct focus and intent on why they wrote about Jesus the way they did. As we come to know the Gospels, original content and context better, then we can have a deeper connection on how they speak to our lives today. I pray that God blesses your hearing and understanding of these important cornerstones in our faith as Christians, and I hope to see all of you back next Sunday. Thanks be to God for this book that we have to read and study and live with together. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let us rise as we